This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. To those of you who celebrate Easter, we'll say Happy Easter. Those who are observing Passover, we'll say very happy Passover. Hopefully those satyrs went well as well. And good morning. Welcome to our program. Hopefully you are prepared for what we will hope is the last time that we hear even the mention of the word snow in a weather forecast. Can you believe this? It's April 1st. Is this an April Fool's joke on the part of meteorologists? It's got to be. There's got to be something like that. Come on, after that last snowstorm, for somebody to even mention the word snow, it just seems almost abusive. Well, on our program this morning, I'm very pleased to say we have guests who are in studio with us. These gentlemen are no strangers to the WFAN microphones. And to this show, we always have lively discussions, and we have a lot of things to cover, areas of discussion. Our guests are from IGEA Brain and Spine. It's their monthly visit with us uh, in studio, Dr. Arun Rajaram. He is an orthopedic surgeon, and uh, the neurosurgeon who is with us is Dr. Adam Lipson. Uh, it's nice to have both of you join us on our program. Happy Holidays. Happy holidays. Happy it's holidays, Mark. Good morning. Under the big lights. We got a lot of extra lights today in the studio. <laughs> I feel like we're in Times Square right now. It's nothing like tanning while doing, <laughs> doing, right. doing the show, too. Uh, hopefully, you guys have been, have been well. Um, a lot of things to cover. You know, I, I said this to Arun earlier when we were downstairs in the lobby, um, Adam, before you came in. It seems like this week, with the injuries, with people in the athletic field, and even crossing over into the huh? entertainment world. Um, we're hearing about these injuries, whether it's ACL with a certain singer. Yep, with right. Kesha. Her, her big comeback tour. <laughs> Here's our Kesha expert over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And obviously, um, you know, the news with Greg Bird um, this week and others – I mean, what's going on that all these injuries are happening? It's the April Fool's uh, <laughs> jokes or, or certain things. No, it is an ironic uh, timing. It's an exciting time of year, too. Obviously, uh, you know, Final Four uh, right. is kind of in full swing. Got our final coming up uh, Monday. You know, good dominant teams yesterday for sure. Uh, Baseball is now obviously underway, so we're probably going to end up seeing uh, some of the initial uh, getting the season started uh, type of uh, strains and, you know, things here and there, which we'll touch on today. But uh, I think, uh, you know, once when the weather gets nice, when everyone's getting ready to start doing things again, uh, you'll start seeing some of these things pop up. But you just have to take it in stride. All right. You shared some thoughts on uh, Tuesday with uh, Joe and Evan talking about uh, Greg Bird. 
Um, for those who didn't hear that discussion, and believe it or not, there were some people who didn't hear <laughs> your chat with them. Um, what are your thoughts on his injury? And I guess most important to the fans, the recovery. What's that, what's that like? Sure. And you know, to those of you who did hear the segment on Tuesday, Greg Bird's issue were related to these small ossicles in his foot. So it's similar to what he had a year ago. Um, back then, he had a pretty common ossicle called an os trigonum. It's a little piece of bone that's in the back of your foot, right under your Achilles tendon. So as you can imagine, someone who's constantly pushing off and running and training, they're going to potentially irritate regions near their Achilles tendon. So last year, that bone got inflamed and it never calmed down. So they um, did a procedure to take it out last year. Fine. That That's somewhat... I won't say common, but it's it's it is expected in a, in an athlete um, to potentially get that kind of an issue. But about a third of the population has that exact little ossicle on the back of their bone. So, meaning half the people run. Uh, if you just took random X-rays of everybody walking down the street right now, you'd see probably a third of them would have that exact same little extra bone or little ossicle in the back of their foot near that Achilles tendon. They'd live their entire life and it would never bother them. So. These, these things are what well, you hear, these terms of extra bones, but it's common in the general population. So that one's one of the most common bones. The one that they took out this past week, on the they always described it as the outside of his ankle. They never gave it a, a true diagnosis or a true name. My hunch is that it's this little bone called the os fibularum. It's a little, um, another tiny little ossicle, tiny little pebble-like bone at the edge of your ankle where it's it's pretty close. It's pretty intimate with some of the tendons and ligaments at that side of your ankle. So you can irritate that bone if you potentially have a little ankle sprain um, or if you, you know, somehow twist your ankle in some weird way. So, so again, a lot of people have these bones in their feet that never bother them. And that's what Evan kept asking me the other day was, you know, is this because he's just more prone to injuries. Because this actually is his third orthopedic surgery. He had a shoulder surgery two years ago, had the foot surgery a year ago, and now his third one. So that was, you know, Evan's point, Evan's concern to me, which rightfully so, you know, this guy's now had three surgeries. He's just more prone to injuries. And my hunch and, and thoughts on him is I think it's just bad luck. I just think he happens to have these tiny little bones in his in his foot that most people live their entire life and don't even know they have that little extra bone in their foot. But for him, they happened to get flared up to the point where he needed um, surgery now twice to take out these little extra bones. Um, so thankfully, it's not a major structural problem. But the moment you make an incision, you got that area has to heal. So you know the first thing they'll do, they'll take out that little little piece of bone, mm-hmm. um, and then then once that is out, then the the skin's got to heal. The tendons around it have to calm down. The inflammation has to calm down. So that's why a lot of these things can take six weeks sometimes for players to really get back to doing what they need to do just for the calming down of all the soft tissues around that area, even though it's not a major you know deal like an ACL or that kind of thing. And once that six-week period is up, how does does he ease into yeah, activity yeah, I mean, on, the, on Exactly. It? The biggest things in the beginning is going to be easing back into running, mm-hmm. easing back into conditioning again because mm-hmm. – Whenever you have a surgery and, and if, right after the surgery, they'll put them in like a little splint or a little boot to try and rest the ankle so the skin can heal and everything like that. The moment you start doing those activities again, 
it can get inflamed if you go back too quickly because once something has been kind of dormant for a little bit, uh, it's like your first time back out. It's easy to easy to kind of strain things. That's why you often hear athletes when they're coming back from an injury or a surgery. There's actually something else that ends up happening that that sets back their timeline to pl- return to play because. There again, their body hasn't been in full go for a little while, and then everything has to start um, getting back into shape and conditioning again. So, if it gets in, you know, hope, let's go the route of what we hope does not happen. Mm-hmm. It gets inflamed. Then what happens? Then initially, you just sh- just shut it down again. You know, they'll probably they'll put them potentially back on a ten day DL or something. There, you got to mm-hmm. ice the heck out of it. And, you know, take a lot of they'll take a lot of anti inflammatories. Um, there's there's some other anti-inflammatory treatments that we have now uh, to try and cool off. Bottom line is you got to cool off inflammation because inflammation is what hurts, and that's true anywhere in the body. So you just have you just focus your treatments on how to knock out inflammation um, in that <clears throat> area if it flares up again. Mm. But again, thankfully, it shouldn't be a major structural issue that it should cool down. Mm. We touched upon or actually mentioned, I guess on um, this show, and it's a couple of shows back when we had done this, um, talking about the shoulder, but really never got into detail Mm -hmm. in this. And we're talking about shoulder. How common are shoulder injuries? And I guess also then the natural question that follows that is how common is shoulder surgery these days and what kind of forms does that take? Sure. I mean, shoulder issues just in general extremely common, and that now has crossed all industries, meaning, sure, we see in athletic uh, situations, athletic injuries, overuse injuries, but I'm even seeing folks that I'm, – I'm seeing this in bankers who are essentially working at their computer all day, traders and things like that that are working on the desk and other folks that are working office-based jobs on a computer all day because of their position of their arms when they're typing, when they're using their mouse, when they're basically people who are at a computer all day. I've seen people coming in with shoulder issues just because of that, just because of the um, position of the arm, of their shoulder when they're doing this. So that's how common it's become in, in society now. And thankfully, the majority of those things, again, go back to inflammation. So rotator cuff tendonitis is the most common thing that, that I see. Um, so you know, we can kind of dig very deep on this, but it's one of those things that... Your, your rotator cuff is the primary uh, reason why we can move our shoulder in every direction. You know, So it, it works uh, very intricately to keep – the analogy is you're trying to keep a golf ball on the tee because the socket of our shoulder is tiny in relationship to the size of the ball of our, of our humerus. So it's actually one of our most sophisticated joints we have in our body. So think of that analogy again. Like you're the, the big golf ball sitting on a tiny tee – if if there is you know just the slightest wind can kind of blow that ball off of the tee the same thing if there's a slight muscle imbalance or if there's one tendon that's injured or if there's one aspect of that shoulder that's not functioning the way it is pain can start to develop because then the shoulder starts to get pulled in one direction and then there's counter forces of muscles trying to bring it back in the other direction so you have like an internal tug of war going on in the shoulder so it's very easy to throw off that balance between the muscles in your shoulder to end up getting inflammation in the shoulder, which manifests as this tendonitis is the most common form of it, as the rotator cuff tendonitis. That's mm-hmm. why people as innocent as working on the on the on your desk all day long get this same issue as some of our athletes do, ironically enough. Mm. 
lot more to talk about on uh, this topic. What we'll do is try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us as well. You want to join us in the discussion at any point you can. Our number here at WFAN is 877-337-6666. In studio with us are guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. They join us on a monthly basis. Uh, In studio with us, um, Dr. Arun Rajaram and Dr. Adam Lipson. And um, we're going to talk more about um, the shoulder. We're going to get into talking a little bit about the um, Tommy John uh, surgery as well in the course of this discussion and some other areas. It's Sunday morning on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Thank you, Jacob. Jacob Wilkins keeping us up to date on happenings in the sporting world this Sunday morning. You want to join us on the phone to can toll free at 877 877- 337-6666, WFAN's toll-free line is brought to you by Mohegan Sun. Unlimited possibilities awaiting at Mohegan Sun. Plan your stay at mohegansun.com. Our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine in studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson and Dr. Arun Rajaram. And we've been talking a little bit about, well, we talk, touched upon um, the shoulder, um, talked a little bit about some of these uh, injuries in the sporting world and um, mentioned also um, one injury that uh, Arun had heard somebody talking about um, on another radio station, actually, uh, this morning with um, the singer uh, Kesha. And I said what we'll do today is try to um, work in some thoughts from some of the folks who are listening to us as well. So let's start with people on the phone. This is usually an interesting um, part of the program. And let's start first with our friend Rob in uh, Lake Success. Rob, good morning. Thanks for waiting. Oh, me first of all, I want to wish everybody uh, a happy Passover and, and a happy Easter to everybody celebrating. Um, this is unbelievable. I love this. I'm, I, I woke up to this uh, conversation. Gentlemen, you guys, I, I called you in the past. I happen to be a podiatrist. Rob, and, you're, uh, you're our favorite fan out well, there, so appreciate the calls. It, it's not only that. I, I want to bring up, because I have the I want to bring up a topic which you just brought up. Number one, the, uh, the accessory bone, when you're talking the aspigillarum. Accessory bone, whoever's listening, is like that little extra bone. There are different bones that are in the different parts of the body, and what the doctors were mentioning was it's really called an accessory bone, um, that aspigillarum. Uh, so my first question, and then I want to talk about Achilles tendonitis because I'm the Boston Marathon's in two weeks. I do not have an issue with it, thank God. I did have an issue, and for the weekend athlete, um, well, let me just go right into that. The weekend athlete that I have seen in my office is the, general, the, the, the guy or the gal who, uh, in their 40s, they go out and they're really not uh, ready to play ball or, or doing jumping sports and running sports, and they pop the Achilles. And that, 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 that's a critical, critical injury for anybody who uh, is, is a weekend athlete because once that happens, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. Now, it does happen to professional athletes as well, um, and, and it's the most important uh, tendon and the longest tendon in the body, and it can take as much force as probably any tendon there is. Let me ask you this, gentlemen, with, with runners, and, and including myself, um, as we get older, the elasticity down in that tendon gets, uh, it dries out. And um, what stre- people always ask me, stretching versus non-stretching. Uh, I happen to not be a person who stretches. Uh, I'm just very flexible, and uh, I still can put in 62 uh, miles a week to get ready for the Boston Marathon and pretty much train that way all year. Uh, number one, do you believe in stretching? Yeah, I mean, short answer, yes. You're you're flexible, so you you kind of you don't need to, which is good. I'm, you know, that's good, and thankfully you don't need to. But 
I I do think uh, there is some, even if you can really get that tenant to get a, even we're talking maybe another couple millimeters of excursion during your run, that may be the difference between uh, just a strain and a tear, right? I mean, that... Right, I, 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 and everybody, you know, that, that's exactly, the, the, the different grades of tears, I know you're not going to, I don't want this to become like a medical discussion sure. between the three of us, the first grade one, grade two, grade three, but, but the point being that Every weekend athlete, the, the people that are not used to playing, and this time of the year especially, right. they're going out and they're playing softball. They're the, the typical softball player. They've been in, inactive all, all winter, and then they go out and they start playing, and that's when they get that little, that little minor tear of it, all different parts of the body, the back, they'll, they'll throw out. Um, but getting back to the running injury, and then I want to ask about uh, the shoulder. Um, running, tendinosis versus tendinitis. Uh, I know what the difference is, but people com- complain of chronic versus the acute uh, ten- Achilles tendonitis. And what could the weekend athlete do to prevent uh, this type of uh, injury happening? And is this a common, am I, am I being correct in saying, do you see this injury more common in the younger athletes uh, or the older athletes? Uh, it probably is in the older athletes, like you said. Once you get into your not not to say that in your twenties you can't get this, but uh, I seem to see in the office more often in folks in their forties and up, um, like like around like you're saying when they're first getting back into all the spring sports and and weekend warrior activities and basketball games outside as it starts to get nicer. Um, so. Yeah, so I, I would say it does get more uh, prevalent as, as we get a little older. And then going back to the point as far as stretching and then preventing some of that tendinosis and, and, and then also you know symptoms from those things, I like the combination of the stretching and the, as you know, the eccentric uh, strengthening. So telling people to do their toe raises. So before right. you go on your run or before you're starting to play that game, you know, stand there against, hold on to something, hold on to the door frame or whatever, go up, stand on your toes and slowly, uh, you know, count to five slow and come back down. That's, that's that neg- like you're doing a negative at the gym, you're doing a negative toe raise. So come down nice and slow. And as you do that, you're stretching, but you're also stimulating that area to get better blood flow. And as we know, that's the reason why a lot but of these tendon right. issues don't get better is because the blood flow's gotten so very, bad. Very poor down in that area. Uh, great. I got a really important question. Everybody seems to ask this. And you never hear anybody give the correct answer or, or because it changes every 20 years. Heat versus, you know, ice. In the old days, it was right after an acute injury, 24 hours on, 20 minutes on, you apply ice, and then, you know, after a couple days, we go to the heat. Is that theory? Because everybody always says, well, do I put heat on it? Do I put ice on one doctor? Do I make the change? What is the going theory nowadays and, you know, on what you tell your patients? I still, and, and going theory, in addition to what I still tell my my folks is, ice first. I and I don't I don't care how recent the injury was. Yeah, I agree with you. The beginning, the short term, first you know two weeks or so, ice is the most important because those are that's when the inflammation and swelling is going to be the most. But even as you start to get back to your activity and you're starting to feel better. I always tell everyone at the end of your workout or the end of your game, throw an ice pack on that thing as soon as you're done. Let it cool down for about 15 minutes. And then after that, then go find, take a shower and get a hot towel and throw it on there to get some blood flow going again. But at the end of the day, inflammation is what causes pain and ice causes that 
constriction and reduction of inflow into that area, which can help reduce inflammation. So that's why I I still think, and and that's true in the well, you know, seeing after working in the NFL and seeing the professional athletes post game routines, that's most of the time what these guys are doing. They're still jumping into an ice bucket, cooling things off, and then you know branching off from there as to additional treatment. So I always still like ice first. Now, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to ask questions that the you know the average person would want to would want to ask. Now I want to ask you a question from from my from my perspective as someone who's a physician and and studied all of this kind of stuff on on the shoulder. Why is it in the old days? It's funny. One of my medical uh, board questions was the name the three muscles in the uh, you know the rotated cuff, and they always threw the teres major in there, which was the one that was always the one that is not you know. But it's why is it minor. now? Now why is it now that you don't see the rotator cuff injuries. That was in the 70s. That was the big injury, rotator cuff. You don't seem to hear that as much. We're hearing, and I don't know what it is on the high school level and, and, and junior high school level uh, when these bones are, uh, are not totally formed and, and closed. Why is it that we don't see that as much when those are the pitching injury of the old day, and now we're getting this uh, UCL injury um, which seems to be the, the, the flavor of the day of the last 20 years or so since Tommy John. Or are you still seeing the rotator cuff from the shoulder, which we know is an unnatural movement? Sure. Good question. I mean, we're oh, two points. We're still seeing the rotator cuff uh, injuries, but we're not as scared about them as they were in the past. And what I mean by that is if you look at every pitcher, almost all of these kids, college kids and pros have – partial thickness undersurface rotator cuff tears, which happened over time of repetitive pitching. So in the past, that was was automatically labeled as a big rotator cuff tear, and what do you do? And some of them were treated. Now you almost expect to see a partial thickness undersurface tear in some of these pitchers because it actually gives them a competitive advantage to peel back their arm a little farther. So there's, there's reasons for why those aren't... Um, fixed uh you know the way it was in the past because it's a different type of tear it's not your uh type of tear that uh, happens in other folks that actually need a full-on repair but the the ucl issue a lot of that is coming from repetitive velocity and from the time these kids are pretty young they're throwing at a higher higher velocity for more and more um, you know, pitches essentially. So that frequency of pitching and velocity is why we're seeing a lot more of these elbow injuries. Last question, gentlemen, and thank you for living me this airtime, Bob. Uh, and I hope I'm hoping I'm adding to the to other questions that people might ask after a soft tissue injury. Um, people are, versus a fracture. We always know fractures. The people say, well, which is worse, a sprain or, or a fracture? Well, we we know that the fracture is the better injury because once it heals, the bone will be 100% versus the uh, the ankle sprain. Once that ligament, which stretches, it's not like a rubber band, it stretches, it stays in that stretched position. But what basically do you recommend as far as a um, after a soft tissue injury, um, when can the, act, the, the athlete return to uh, participating in sports at a high level and um, – I want to finish on that question. And, gentlemen, I wish you a lot of luck. And, Bob, keep, this, keep these coming because with all the people going out there in the spring, there's a lot of questions I would think are going to be coming up with the weekend warriors. And thank you, gentlemen, for your time, and I hope I added to the show. Yes, you did. Thank you for your call this morning, too. Right. 
Perfect. Thanks, Rob. Now, we'll wrap up quick with this. I mean, it, it really it varies. I mean, as you know, soft tissue injuries can go from a minor sprain all the way to a tear. Um, you know, I saw a high school lacrosse uh, girl last week, and she had a pretty bad ankle sprain. I saw her on a Monday because they were Monday afternoon practice, and she was really swollen, really painful Monday afternoon when I saw her. So initially I shut her down for a week, and I was checking back basically the following Monday, and I was just hoping she was going to be doing a little better to be able to play a week later, basically at the two-week mark. But she was pretty much almost 100% at one week out. So, um, you know, it just depends on the on the injury. And um, it can vary anyway from a week to six weeks based on, you know, the type of injury. But, um, but yeah, so keep getting stronger. What was her reaction when you gave her the news about being shut down for a week? She kind of, she she thought she kind of knew it wasn't happy. She kind of knew it was coming because when your ankle blows up and you can barely walk on it, you know, being able you don't to have play, much choice, yeah, right? exactly, being able to play lacrosse lacrosse the scrimmage the next day is probably not going to happen. So yeah, it was bittersweet, but thank goodness in a week she was good to go. Now that's the important thing. Yeah, eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six is our number here at the fan. You want to join us in discussion? You can. Um, we're going to take a pause in just a moment. But, Adam, you mentioned something, actually, when we were on the break before that ties in with this whole discussion about the shoulder. And we got a minute before we pause. You were saying just this idea, and this, is, I think, is a great thing visually for people who are listening to us. Reaching your arm up, right? and you did this literally when you were talking before, we don't think about what goes into that. Absolutely. So I, I can... Uh probably deflect this to a rune, but the reality is is each of our joints are uniquely designed for human function. Mm-hmm. And one of the most unique joints really is the shoulder in terms of mm-hmm. what you ask of it for the range of motion. The idea that you can bring an arm over your head above gravity is uh is a very com- it's probably one of the most complex motions that movements that our joint performs. And the actual physics of how that happens is really fascinating, but it asks a lot of our bodies. And I don't think people always recognize, mm-hmm. you know, we see where it fails as physicians, okay. but I think appreciating what a normal joint functions as, you know, when you start seeing all of the ways it doesn't function normally, you start to really have respect for what what happens when it functions properly. It puts things in perspective at that point. We'll take a pause in our discussion. We've got a lot more to get to. We'll get to some more folks on the phones at 877-337-6666. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Arun Rajaram and Dr. Adam Lipson in studio with us and taking some of your calls too, 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. And we're trying to work in some thoughts from folks listening to us on some of the areas that have been raised. We're going to go into other areas of discussion, but first let's go back to the phone. Steve has been holding forever on Long Island. Sorry to keep you on hold so long, Steve. Good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my question for the doc is, uh, I, I fell in a hole in uh, my right foot. I, I fractured two metatarsals, and I got what they call a Liz Frank sprain. That turned into a blood clot in my right leg, calf, and then I developed CRPS. Can the doctor address that, and what's the prognosis? I'm 63 years old. Steve, thanks for the call. Um, Dr. Rajaram here. So, Steve, how long ago did this happen? 
This happened in 2016. It's uh, going on 18 months, and I still can't run. I can't squat on my leg. Uh, it's very detrimental, this injury. Sure, sure. No, it's a tough injury, and you know you probably heard some of this before when you when you got injured. the The fact that you broke two metatarsals and injured that Liz Frank ligament. That Liz Frank ligament is basically one of the strongest ligaments in our in our foot. So if that got hurt, clearly there was a ton of energy going through the foot, and uh, the CRPS, the chronic regional pain syndrome, that is unfortunately related to the way the inflammation after the injury affected the nerves in that area and you said you also had a blood clot so obviously you know there was a lot going on right after your injury um sometimes the the crps does take unfortunately years to calm down but it does there are a lot a lot of newer a lot newer medications uh related to treatments of that and nerves you know we even have a, a neurologist in our in our practice that uh you know deals with some of these newer medications that uh be worth to, to you talking to um and and the foot especially because gravity takes swelling down and obviously we walk on it every day it takes a lot longer to heal sometimes so sometimes the first two years you're going to have swelling on and off and after that two-year mark is when things start to calm down so you're you're definitely not kind of out of the window of improvement you definitely can have a certain um a degree of improvement as time goes on but you obviously had a big injury to the foot and um you know certainly talk to as many uh, people as you can to figure out how the best tailor the treatments for it but but hang in there because it is gonna it should continue to improve what, I'm what, going to add what's, your, what's your feelings on acupuncture? I think acupuncture is good. It just depends on you know. It's hard to hard to do certain things with acupuncture, like the Liz Frank ligament, for example. Obviously, is a is a tiny area that isn't necessarily going to be addressed by acupuncture. But acupuncture works really well to stimulate the muscles around an injury that can unload an area to make you feel better. So I, I certainly would try, and if you've had success uh, with it, and Adam was going to add something yeah, too. So, so this is Dr. Lipson from this is Dr. Lipson from neurosurgery, and you know I think actually this is pretty reflective of why we have a multi-specialty practice. Yep. Is that you know at the end of the day you have a sports orthopedic surgeon, we have a neurologist, neurosurgeons, and now we have a neuropsychologist in our in our group because I actually do treat a number of patients with what that diagnosis of CRPS called chronic regional pain syndrome. In days of past, it used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And it's an unusual response of the nervous system to the inflammatory mediators. And you see this heightened pain response that actually has probably more to do with central processing at the level of the spinal cord. Um, Usually it's, it's slightly treatable with medication Sympathetic blocks from your interventional pain doctor can be helpful. And actually, you know, interestingly, just yesterday, you know, something that we, we do as kind of the gold standard for CRPS is uh, a spinal cord stimulator. We're actually putting an electrode in the back of the spinal cord. I just did one yesterday for that. So it, it's something that that's the option of last resort to go through a surgical procedure to address this. But if, for patients who – I've had patients who cannot put a sheet on their leg – they can't walk on it. Um, they're miserable. And I've even seen patients who have been referred for amputation, which the data is really questionable on that. But one, per- I know one woman, you know, she had such severe pain in her foot. You know, they discussed the amputation at one point 
And we were able to salvage that by putting electrodes in the back small spinal cord. Not that I'm recommending you go to surgery, but my point is there are many different things you can do. And maybe I would I, I would readdress it with your orthopedic surgeon, maybe see an interventional pain doctor about that CRPS syndrome. Yeah, and one other question. Does this uh, CRPS, it can leave your body and then come back at a future date? Is that true? It's variable course. It, it, you know, part of it is we don't have a perfect understanding of how the nervous system responds to that pain inflammatory mediators. Generally, it's fairly constant. We do see some traveling of the hypersensitivity and the response that it, to pain, but but usually once it's treated, it's addressed. All right. well, thank you so much for your information. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Certainly travel thank safely. You, Travel safely as well. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. One thing we have not done thus far, contact information for IGA Brain and Spine, which one of you please share that with our listeners. So the website is www.igeaneuro.com. I'll get you the 866 phone number in a second. We have one office in Manhattan, six offices in New Jersey, and... The Jersey number is 908-688-8800, and then and we, get the, we have an 866 number as well. But obviously, wherever you are, you can call our Jersey number. Okay. Let's go back to the phones. As I had a feeling, we've got people who want to talk here, and they're going to take us into, interestingly enough, into areas that we were talking about in planning this program today. Uh, next up, speaking of New Jersey, let's go to uh, Wayne in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Wayne, thanks for calling. Good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Let me I'll make a long story short. Uh, six weeks ago, I had reverse cup shoulder replacement surgery. Two weeks later, um, it dislocated, went back into surgery to, to for re- revision surgery. Well, in the recovery room, it dislocated again, oh. had revision surgery again the next day, and I'm going in next week now. It dislocated again, and I'm going in next week to uh, have the implant taken out. Uh, well, I mean, wow. Wayne, it's a lot. A lot going on, uh, obviously. You know, I'm, I, I feel for you, and I hope uh, you start making progress, you know, soon. But... It's tough. I mean, I, obviously, you probably got a lot of the explanations from your doctor and discussions about this, and that is one risk with a shoulder replacement. Um, it can happen with hip replacements also, but but in, your, in this case, obviously, sh- the shoulder replacement, it's a ball and socket joint, and the ball can unfortunately jump out of the socket, and there's various reasons for that, uh, soft tissue reasons and bony reasons, but um, you know, it is, uh, it's unfortunate. It's a tough complication. It is a tough uh, issue with it regarding replacements. The reason for it was there was a polyethylene piece that came off at a ball and was floating out, floating around in there. So apparently there was, there was a malfunction of the implant. Three times? There was a polyethylene piece on the ball. Right, that, right. But the third, but what about the other three? I mean, you had a total of three dislocations, right? So all three times is the same problem? He didn't find that until the, until the second revision. Uh, and so now he put it back in and, uh, now he, he tried putting some, something onto the ball, which didn't work. So he's going to put me back in. He goes, I'm going to have less mobility. I guess he's going to put a, put a regular shoulder implant in there now. Got it. Got it. Yeah. There, there are nuances to all these. And, you know, obviously your surgeon knows best, you know, knowing what's in there, 
But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it certainly that is one risk with uh, joint replacements, uh, the stability or instability of some of the components. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for your help. No good problem. Luck. Good luck. Thank you. Thank oh. you for your patience on the phone as well. Uh, let's go next to Stamford, Connecticut, to Kevin, who's been holding for a while. Kevin, thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I'm pretty bagged up. I just got a, a laminectomy done on my uh, on uh, C3, C4, C5, and C6 on my neck. And uh, that that's coming along well. But I, I continue to work, and I slip coming off like a little roof. And, I, you know, putting your hands down is just like an actual reaction, to like slipping, like your feet slip out from underneath you. And I tore, like, the rotator cuff in, in half and oh. the ligaments off the bone. I mean, it, it's a total mess, they said. Um, I, I play a lot of golf, and I, I, I didn't really get into the discussion with my surgeon because I'm getting cleared for this, I, I think, on, like, the 24th of April, and then I, I want to get this done as quick as possible. Um, well, would I would I make you because they're talking about a tending graft and everything because it's retracted down the arm. Um, am I going to make a full recovery on that for uh, as far as like a, a golfer? Kev, yeah, I mean, tough uh, tough injury. Obviously, you know, it's if he's th- if he's worried about the tendon that you have not being strong enough or or long enough to repair. That's why he's discussing the graft uh, option to basically make your rotator cuff. Uh, stronger when it repairs it um as long as it heals yeah you should um it but it takes time it takes time and your your surgeon probably talked to you about this it takes three months just for that rotator cuff repair to heal so you're you're in a sling for a big chunk of that unfortunately it's a hurry up and wait kind of recovery um you're just staring at the calendar so it is it is frustrating from that standpoint where you just have to stare in the count stare at the calendar and wait for that three month mark and then after three months once the tendon's healed then you're going to start doing more of the muscle um, strengthening and kind of waking up those muscles again. Um, and then the recovery continues for that whole year. So it may be a year before that shoulder feels the way you want it to feel playing golf. You'll be back to playing golf before that point, but it may be a year before you get back to that um, you know that level that you want to be at. Oh, yeah, yeah. I packed everything away. I figure, I figure a year, like she was saying, uh, you know, like, Six months, I'll have like maybe like seventy to eighty percent back, and then the rest of it, you know, will come along with therapy and everything. But yeah, it's just a frustrating injury because I can't do anything. When it's just like dangling there, it feels like it's you know I, I I can't lift it sideways. If I'm laying on my side, I can I can't even lift it off the side of my body. It's just you know it's just like useless, and it's it's been almost almost going on two months because it's like a workman's comp thing, and I gotta deal with them in the meantime for this you know they just make you wait it's just it's always and the waiting time moving around is that a good thing you know to keep it active yes no that's a great point so absolutely move it as much as possible to maintain your flexibility because no matter what you're going to get stiff when you have the surgery because you're going to be stuck in basically a protective position for about three months so everyone gets a little stiffer after the rotator cuff repair so do your best to you know, use your other arm to help, you know, raise your arm overhead, rotate in, rotate out. So go into the surgery with as much motion as possible and it'll help you with your recovery after. Now, is that like a casting or just a a basic sling? No, it's just, it's a sling. It'll be one of those slings with those pillows. If you've seen people have those um, black slings that have a little pillow that kind of rests against the side of your uh, um, ribs or waist, it'll be like that. Okay. All right. Well, hey, thanks thanks for your help. 
No problem, Kev. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Have Good luck. Day. Happy holidays to you, Kevin. Thank you very much for your call this morning, too. Um, interesting calls from folks listening to us. One of the things we had talked about um, heading into today also was to talk about the situation with Tiger Woods and um, fusion surgery. Want to share some thoughts on that? Sure. So this is uh, Adam Lipson from Neurosurgery. So Tiger has been a really fascinating story for all of us and on many ends. But I think <laughs> medically I'll, I'll, I'll go – you know, he, he had pr- three previous lumbar discectomy surgeries um, in his career before he went for this fusion. Mm-hmm. And that really has affected his ability to get back to the, the level of play and shape that he was as prime, which I think the world wants to see. You know, I think mm-hmm. I, I don't think we appreciate it. Just, I, I think we did appreciate it. I don't think we ever appreciate it enough when someone is that dominant and that magical and, and seeing their talents fully. Um, manifested. And I, I think that, you know, so eventually Tiger basically kept having back issues and his disc spaces were essentially very collapsed at that point and he underwent an L5-S1 fusion. Uh, they went through the belly, what's called an anterior lumbar inner body fusion. Uh, that was done at Texas Back Institute by a colleague of mine. Uh, that's probably a surgery I do once or twice a week. And he went through a recovery and now he's looking fantastic you know, yeah. I think better than anyone expected and so a couple issues here I think one is to that does show that surgery can help people which is really why you do it you know you, you don't want to do a fusion for no good reason but I think you know we can talk about that after the hour hmm. interesting discussion and so many interesting areas where we've gone so far, and we got a lot more to get to. We'll also take some of your calls. Our guests are from IGEA Brain and Spine, and they're going to be with us for the full program this morning. We roll until 8 o'clock. After that point, after Jacob's 8 o'clock update, it is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf. In studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson and Dr. Arun Rajaram from IGEA Brain and Spine. You want to join us, 877-337-6666. That's our phone number here at WFAN. I'm Bob Salter. And um, tell you what, one of the areas where we're going to be going in uh, that next hour, too, is talk a little bit about the um, Tommy John surgery and some other areas this Sunday morning. having Jacob with us on Sunday mornings. Good morning, I'm Bob Salter. Happy Easter, happy Passover, whatever it is that you are celebrating or observing. Hopefully it's an enjoyable time and safe time for you and yours. And let me just say this too. The temptation is there with all that food. Whether it's Passover Seder, Easter dinner. Eat in moderation, folks. Mm-hmm. Just a word to the wise. Right? A lot of us get real tempted to just go for everything. Right? Got to have a little bit of everything there. I was in a store yesterday, and there was a guy in front of me. It was hilarious. He was ordering things, and he was ordering from all these different um, areas. And all of a sudden, he turned around and looked at me, and he says, 
I gotta stop spending money. I'm going crazy here. It's, I got caught up in this whole Easter phenomenon here. I don't even know what I'm gonna do with all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, people get that wrapped up in things. Well, after our eight o'clock update, you'll get wrapped up in the Sports Edge program with Rick Wolf. Like that segue. After our nine o'clock update, you'll want to be wrapped up. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be <laughs> talking baseball here on the fan, and we are in a discussion with IGO Brain and Spine Docs. Uh, Arun Rajaram. He is uh, an orthopedic surgeon. He's shared an awful lot of insight with us, as has Dr. Adam Lipson, who is a neurosurgeon. And they're going to share more with us. We're going to take some of your calls as well. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. We mentioned contact information for IGEA brain and spine before, but you also wanted to mention the phone number. Right. So we have an 866 number for uh, Manhattan and for all over New Jersey, and that is 866-467-1770. And for those who didn't hear before, the website for IGEA brain and spine is? www.igeaneuro.com. That's I-G-E-A-N-E-U-R-O.com. Okay, let's get back to the folks on the phones because we always have interesting discussions here. And the other thing is when we come back, uh, too, in just a couple minutes, I want to follow up on something that you mentioned before we uh, paused for our top of the hour uh, update because that was very interesting when you were talking about um, the surgery and uh, this whole idea of the recovery from the fusion surgery I want to talk with you about, uh, too. Sure. Uh, to the phone we go. Let's head over to New Jersey. We're quite popular in New Jersey today here. Too. Uh, Kevin in Fort Lee. Kevin, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, guys, and thank you so much for taking my call. <clears throat> I have a 16-year-old nephew. He's a football player and a baseball player, and he has a, he's been diagnosed through an MRI with a partial tear of the patella tendon. And he's seen two different orthopedic surgeons, and they both recommended that he put a cast on it from basically from his ankle up to his inner thigh for one month. And due to his age, they say that he has a great chance of recovering 100%. But I guess my question is what you doctors think of his a full recovery and his ability to come back and play ball again. Sure, Kevin. Good, good question. Um, this is Arun Roger. I'm the orthopedic surgeon. So it's it's something that you do want to take seriously. So because it is pretty much your most important tendon to be able to push off at the knee. Um, I would have to you know look at his MRI and things like that and, and talk to him to think about a couple other aspects of this. But if it's a partial tear and obviously the majority of his tendon is still okay then you got to just calm it down in some capacity to help it heal. And the cast is one option. Um, one, of those lo- one of those locked um, knee braces is another option. Um, and there's also, a depending on the type, uh, there's an option for some of the newer biologic treatments. Um, I do a lot of platelet-rich plasma treatments in our office, and this is definitely something that I've treated with platelet-rich plasma where you're taking your own, your own blood, your own... Um, platelets and concentrating them and injecting them to the site of injury. So you're putting in cells that have an ability to 
augment and stimulate that area to heal and provide additional cells for healing. Um, and the patella tendon is one area that um, is a um, area that's pretty responsive to that. So that's something you do in addition to protecting it. So um, he, as long as he protects it and lets it heal and lets it calm down, um, he should be he should be good in the long run. But uh, I would tell him just to take it easy. It's not something that if he still has some soreness, he wants to push on it too hard um, because you don't want to tear that because that can be a devastating injury for sure at his uh, age. Ab- absolutely. I, I don't want to hold you guys up, but they're saying keep it in, in that cast for a month. And then after that month period, what would you recommend as far as therapy if, if we stick to the, this, these methods that these, these doctors have told us to, to stick to? Sure. So after that, the initial therapy is just to get some range of motion back because the knee is obviously okay. going to get stiff when it's in the uh, when it's in the cast. And then right. technically, the tendon takes three months to heal. So the the strengthening program, depending on the severity of his tear, may not begin until around that three month mark. So in the beginning, the therapy is mostly just for motion. Okay. Thank you so much, doctors, and what a great show you have, sir. And I I really appreciate you guys' time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Happy holidays to you, too, as well. And thank you for your call this morning. 877-337-6666 is our phone number at the fan. You want to join us in our discussion. Now, one of the things that always strikes me in these discussions is how common these issues with the knee are. Um, And it seems age is not a factor, I mean, in terms of, Runs the gamut. The common. I mean, can be. I mean, what's what's the youngest patient you ever ever seen? The youngest patient I've seen. I mean, little. I mean, little kids. I mean, we see. Uh, I diagnosed a hip click in my own son, uh, my own daughter, when she was three months old. So you can see little. I mean, you see orthopedic things as early as uh, you know. Um, Newborns. When we were at Yale, when I was at Yale for my residency, we had to actually do a, a pelvic um, procedure on a newborn baby because the bone hadn't grown um, in the correct format for the bladder and everything to grow. So we actually needed to help with our urology colleagues to help uh, reshape the baby's pelvis. So literally, from the day you show up in this world, there are issues that uh, can arise that you know we can treat nowadays in this day in this day and age. So it runs the spectrum. Um, you start to see probably more frequent things come up around the middle school age. Uh, prior to middle school, kids are pretty indestructible in many ways. Um, you know, Adam's got a newborn baby, and I got two little people, so we see our our kids bounce back from all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, I was joking, my daughter she's about she's three and a half now. If she starts crying about something, I'll say, "Is it bad enough you need surgery?" And if she says no, then I don't even I don't even worry about it. If she says it is, then I'll I'll go do a little pretend surgery on her, and she's fine, and stick a bandaid on it, and you're good to go. But uh, you certainly, when they're little, they're pretty indestructible. And then in our middle schools, when you start to see more of the um, tendonitis and the overuse related uh, things, my uh, in the ra- last few years, the Youngest, most memorable um, procedure that we had to do was on a 12-year-old ballet um, girl, pretty high-level ballet dancer. Mm. Um, she was in a um, in a show and landed on her kneecap and basically knocked off a um, piece of cartilage on the inside of her kneecap. And she's 12 years old. Um, and it was small enough that a 12-year-old usually would heal that. 
Um, and most kids uh, would do just fine. So initially, you know, we were still talking to her, obviously talking to her parents, and we didn't think it was going to be something that necessarily would need a surgery. Um, so we did a lot of other treatments and things like that to try and get her better. But, um, but long story short, it didn't get better on its own. So I had to do a, a surgery for her um, to tr- treat it. And uh, she was 12 and a half at the, at the time. And um, literally six months later, she actually won the New York City uh, solo competition uh, that she was performing in that following spring. So, you know, that was, uh, that was you know, awesome, awesome to see that in her. And obviously kids recover a lot faster than adults do. You know, she was really young, so she's able to recover that quickly. Um, but, uh, but we certainly see it because now the, the level and frequency of activities that kids are participating in, they're going to st- start seeing these things around that middle school, uh, middle school age, uh, late elementary, middle school age. And then, you know, as <laughs> we age, it seems there isn't any lessening in terms of the incidence right. of issues nope. with the knee. Nope. It's... Uh, and it comes from different things, right? So as you, as you get older, you're not necessarily getting some of the overuse things, but sometimes you're, you know, you may have randomly tripped on something or twisted something. It's easier to twist and tweak things as we get older because mm-hmm. things get tighter. Mm-hmm. It goes back to our very first caller this morning about we talked about stretching and right. and conditioning and warming up. Um, that's because unfortunately, as we get older, everything just gets tighter and a little stiffer, so it's easier to tweak. When a rubber band's not as flexible anymore, that thing will just snap as opposed to being nice and flexible. So so that's where we see those kind of things as we get older. And you see overuse-related things. And we were talking earlier about the way our shoulder raises overhead and rotator cuff-related things. A lot of these things are just wear and tear changes that we use our arms every single day of our life, right? So that's where these things um, can kind of accumulate over time. Mm. Interesting uh, discussion. Now... I think we've got a couple minutes here before we have to uh, pause. Let me follow on what you mentioned before we pause for our top of the hour uh, break, Adam. And you were talking about the fusion surgery. And, you know, first of all, as you talk about that, the layperson, and I'm speaking for lay people, we're sitting in amazement thinking of what's really involved in this, Okay. But the idea of recovery from them, what's that like? Well, I'll start with defining what, what do we do with the fusion, which is, you know, at, at each segment of the spine, where's the cervical thoracic lumbar, there's a very individual motion. It's called segmental motion. Mm-hmm. And when you get an injury to a disc, uh, that disc will fail. Uh, it can cause some nerve pain by compressing on a nerve, but you lose some of the structural support of the spine. There are things that we do sometimes, such as what happened with Tiger's earlier surgeries, where we do a discectomy uh, to decompress the nerve and remove that fragmented disc, but that does not address the fact that that motion is now impaired. Um, and, And that spinal segment can get too much motion, which causes chronic pain and can affect function. And in those situations really the best strategy that we have. We, we sometimes can do a disc replacement. More often than not, we need to actually fuse that segment. What we do in a fusion generally is we remove the disc. Uh, we place some sort of cage to replace that disc, and it um, contains bone to provide a substrate for fusion, and we stabilize the area, either with screws and a rod or a plate. Um, at that point, once... 
And I think both in the orthopedic surgical world and neurosurgical world and really any surgery, there's what you do as a surgeon to change the anatomy to address the disease or the problem or improve function. And then the body has to go through the healing process. So we work with our patients, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like I do this on a patient and they're better. You know, I, I would love that. That but would that's, be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Team effort. But it's a journey. It's a journey uh, emotionally, psychologically for that, for the, for every individual. And everyone has a different relationship to their body. And, and a lot of what you, you go through is say, okay, I've done my job. I've, I've done the best surgery I can do for to address your anatomy. And now your body has to heal and we have to work with it. And some bodies work great with the work you do. Sometimes they don't. But that's, you know, the, the process of what we call physical therapy, rehabilitation. Uh, it, I think it is very self-directed. You have some people who really take the diligently and say, you know, I want to get out there. And some people don't. And that can affect long-term function. But generally when we talk about the aging body, we touched on this last month when we spoke, it, it is I think that there are still principles of range of motion, strengthening and then once you get through those categories then going towards endurance and aerobic training mm. dr mm. adam lipson and dr arun rajaram from igea brain and spine are with us on our program this sunday it's sunday morning on the fan good morning everybody this is bob salter after our eight o'clock update rick wolf is along with the sports edge program and after our nine o'clock update ed randall is by talking baseball on this uh, easter sunday morning happy easter to those of you celebrating that or happy passover hopefully it's a uh, healthy and uh, safe time for you and yours an enjoyable one as well we're in discussion with our guests from igea brain and spine they've joined us in studio dr arun rajaram he is an orthopedic surgeon and dr adam lipson he is a neurosurgeon excuse me and uh, they have uh, joined us on our program We've um, taken some of your calls. We can do some more if you want to join us, 877-337-6666. That's our number here at The Fan. There's so many different areas where people have gone. And I love the fact that Jacob Wilkins, who's doing our updates, actually worked in a little question about, about sneaky, his, sneaky. his back there yeah. during the whole update break period, uh, too. Um, one of the things that I was thinking heading into this discussion today an area that we have touched upon before, and obviously over the years there's been a lot of talk about Tommy John surgery on this radio station, as I guess you might imagine somehow it would have come up over the years. What exactly is Tommy John surgery, first of all? So Tommy John, the Tommy John ligament, uh, as we finally have kind of called it now over the probably decades now, is the ulnar collateral ligament. So the, everyone has heard of the MCL in your knee which is on the inside of your knee. This is on the inside of your elbow, this ligament, the ulnar collateral ligament. So if you're if you're looking out with your right arm, you take your other hand, just kind of feel the inside of your elbow, <clears throat> the inner half of your elbow, that's where that ligament lives. Mm -hmm. And it basically provides stable uh, stability. It's the strongest stabilizing ligament we have in our elbow. Now, it's it's not a unique injury to baseball. It's just uniquely treated with surgery um, in baseball more than any other sport. So that's because of what a pitcher needs to do. And, and honestly, you can even make it narrow. You can narrow the scope down to just pitchers. So an outfielder who tears their tiny jaw on their ulnar collateral ligament 
probably won't even end up having surgery. It's the pitcher that is the one that you worry about. So not only is it baseball-specific in regards to surgery, it's also position-specific to pitchers in baseball. Um, you know, I, I was I was with the Texans uh, when we lived in you know worked and lived and worked down there. JJ Watt, he still wears mm-hmm. that elbow brace to this day. He injured that ligament years ago. Now the brace is part of his routine and part of what uh, you know he likes in regards to his uh, his body body armor to play at such an amazing level. But you know he tore that ligament. He didn't. He uh, never needed surgery. There's plenty of other big um, football play athletes over the years, um, big time players that have torn that exact same ligament and never ended up having surgery. And it just goes back to again what you need to do. So the pitching mechanism when you're bringing your arm from that kind of cocked up position behind you and then initially really bringing it forward, that torque on your elbow is phenomenal. So that phenomenal amount of torque is done over and over and over again in pitching from now we're seeing from the time when these kids are five years old. You know, the Little League kids are starting earlier and earlier and and they're pitching at a very high level and a very fast level too. So... Um, that's why we're seeing Tommy John issues at a younger and younger age. Um, and then there's so many theories as to, okay, why are we seeing more of it today? Um, it's almost like a badge of honor now going going into college. You know, has that high school uh, has that high school pitcher had a Tommy John uh, surgery or has that college pitcher had one? Um, so it unfortunately has become more common. and And I think one of the reasons why is because of the total number of pitches that you've pitched in your life predisposes you to potentially injuring that ligament. And then if it does get injured and if it doesn't completely heal properly, then you don't have that stability. And the moment you don't have the stability in that elbow, when you're cocked back about to bring that arm forward to throw the ball, the elbow becomes wobbly and you lose control and you lose velocity and you, you lose strength in the, in the arm. Um, and that's why it affects pitchers more than any other position, any other sport. Recovery from the surgery? What's that like? It's, one of those, it's a year. It's one of those things. It's another year recovery, kind of like an ACL. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is the surgery itself, initially on the day of, you're taking another tendon from your, usually your wrist. There's a, there's a tendon called the palmaris longest tendon in your wrist. It's kind of an extra tendon if you want to think of it that way. You basically take that from your wrist, and then you prepare it and you shape it to be similar to what an ulnar collateral ligament would be, and then you put it into the elbow. So you basically recreate, you give the person a new ulnar collateral ligament because their old one tore and it never got back to full strength. So you're literally giving them a new ligament, and then that's that's the surgery. So the Tommy John surgery is giving them a new ulnar collateral ligament. And then that three-month clock starts in the beginning just of that area to heal. That tendon has to heal into the body, which takes three months. So for three months, you're really not doing hardly anything. Mm-hmm. And then you gotta, you're going to start building up your muscle strength. You're going to start improving your motion. And, and that whole timeline of gradual progression to, okay, the first six months, you're going to spend getting your motion and your regular strength. Then the next couple months, you'll start thinking about baseball-specific stuff and then start increasing pitching towards the end of that, um, you know, six to nine, that nine-month period, and then getting back to game speed and game production, which takes about a year. So that's why most pitchers that end up having the surgery, you're looking at a year before they're back to pitching again at the level that they want to be pitching at. So when they start back with pitching, it's it's 
relatively simple right at the start and then it builds gradually? Very soft, exactly. Very simple at the beginning. I mean, literally, it's as light as initially, just underhand to- soft tosses mm-hmm. just to kind of get the mm-hmm. arm fluid motion mm-hmm. back. And then short tosses and then long tosses and then pitching from the mound and then gradually increasing the velocity, gradually changing the types of pitches. So it's a very, very slow process. And each step of the way, you can get flare-ups because the other tendons, like we talked about earlier, when you injure something or have surgery for one thing, it's usually something else that flares up uh, along the way of your recovery that can slow down your recovery. So a lot of these guys will get triceps tendonitis or tendonitis on the outside of the elbow. Um, They'll get other things that can potentially flare up because nothing has been performing normally for that entire time window. So when they first start going back to things, the other things can start to flare up. So during that whole time period, you got to be careful because if something else flares up, then that's another reason why you have to cool down a little bit. Um, So it's, yes, it's a very... Uh, methodical, gradual progression back to pitching. And is there a danger of that being a recurring injury? Uh, yeah, if you're if you're returning to pitching, uh, it's thankfully doesn't happen that often. But uh, yes, if you're returning to high level pitching, you're the you're putting that you, ligament back on the mm. same stress you were the day before you tore it. So it certainly can happen again. Um, but thankfully, that is. That is rare. Because mm. that's got to be a, you know, something psychologically mm-hmm. on the mind of somebody who's going back to, especially going back to pitching at a high level. Absolutely. And, and this is similar to an ACL discussion that we had before where people who have football players or, for that matter, you know, any, any athlete, but this is specific to the NFL because we surveyed NFL players. The NFL player that had an ACL surgery, they didn't feel back to normal in their mind in regards to their knee until their second season back. So it took two years before they finally didn't have to think about their knee. So when that wide receiver is running their route, that whole first year when they made that quick cut, they thought about their knee. So that was the survey of NFL players that it wasn't until their second season back that they finally said that they didn't have to think about their knee. Even though their strength was great, their motion was great, their production was good, in the back of their mind, they're still it's human instinct. You're protecting your body. Your, your, your fear, the fear of an injury, um, is, can be very, can be, is very real. It's a very real thing. So that same philosophy transfers over to our baseball pitchers when it comes to the Tommy John. Hmm. So then the natural thought from the layperson standpoint is going to be, isn't that going to have an effect on one's performance? Yeah. Having such a heavy thing, on your mind? Absolutely. So that's why that first year back, a lot of those NFL guys, it's not their best season in their career. Their first, <laughs> you know, they still, a lot, most of them will perform well, right. but usually their first year back's not their best season. Right. Um, but they, a lot of them wear a brace. So the, a brace does provide, um, yes, added um, physical stability from the brace, but there also is a mental component to that. There's a big uh, psychological component to wearing a brace for your knee, for your elbow, for your ankle. There's a um, that little extra level of protection, and sometimes that's all they need. That little extra protection from that brace gives them the confidence to not have to worry about their knee um, if it's still bothering them to a certain extent. So those are other things that you know we do to try and help the athlete perform at the best level. Mm. Something I've um, thought about, I think we touched upon this the very first time that we talked. Our guests are from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Arun Rajaram and Dr. Adam Lipson in studio with us. 
keeping up to date on all these changes that occur in sports medicine, um, how do you do that? I mean, there's so many different areas where you guys are are focused. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it's one of the joys of, for me, being a brain spine surgeon is that you have new technologies, new data. Your field is always changing. You're getting better outcomes than you did five years ago, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. That's the fun part is that mm-hmm. you're always upping your game. But you have to invest your time and energies into that. So what do you do? You go to meetings. I spent a lot of time uh, talking. Going to meetings, uh, reviewing directions, uh, and even at the meetings, there's so much material. You have to really pick a couple of areas. So, you know, two years ago, I said, okay, it's time for me to really kind of get up to date and and renew my expertise in concussions, for example. So I spent two days really just talking about concussions at the meetings. Another time might be spent on spine tumors. Another one would be on minimally invasive spine surgery. Mm -hmm. So the meetings are important. Uh, There are journals, but the reality is it's probably 200 pages a week of journals that are published. (laughs) So you try to catch up with them where you can, um, but you have to be really targeted. And I think the, the third area is, you know, for me, a lot of it is teaching. Uh, I have residents at St. Barnabas Medical Center. You know, that keeps you very honest about making sure that the what you teach them is up-to-date and relevant, and you're constantly having to, you know, a lot of times before my surgeries, I'll, I'll give them articles and other materials. So so it's a process. You never feel like you're perfectly up-to-date, but you feel like you're, you're, you're always trying to, as long as you continually practice and spend a few hours a week trying to up your game, you get there. Okay. We're going to take a pause in our discussion with you, Arun. I'm going to let you address this that question as well. We'll come back. Um, also, I should mention, in fact, folks who are listening to us, we covered a lot of different areas. You can jump in on any of those if you want to. Uh, excellent opportunity to ask a question of our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. 877-337-6666 is our number here at WFAN. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall is by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. We're in discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. In studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson. He is a neurosurgeon. Dr. Arun Rajaram is a uh, an orthopedic surgeon. He has um, joined us on our program. And I was going to turn to you because I let Adam respond to the question I posed before the update. You didn't have a chance to respond to it. How do you keep up to date? You, you've, you've touched upon so many different areas just during this program in answering questions from not only from me, but from folks listening to us. Um, it, it, it seems like you would almost constantly have to be reading or taking in material to be up on all this sure no it's like uh, like what adam was saying there's Do you so... sleep <laughs> i try <laughs> most days um but no there's there is so much information out there you know for for everyone you know from us to even you know folks at home trying to research their own conditions and things like that so you have the whole gamut of of journal articles and and websites and and webinars and videos and and meetings you know so and my, you know, like Adam said, meetings are some of my favorite um, ways to to get up to date on the latest and greatest. You know, last month when we were when we did the show, I was in New Orleans, and you guys, you know, you guys were here. So I, I was at our National Academy meeting in New Orleans last month 
for that reason. And this uh, week, this Thursday, I'm going to D.C. Um, every spring uh, in April, we do the um, it's called the uh, Sports Medicine uh, Cherry Blossoms uh, Seminar. Mm-hmm. So it's done every year uh, right in the beginning of April. And they combine it with the Military Orthopedic Society as well with Walter Reed Hospital in D.C. So it's a combination um, civilian and military orthopedic sports medicine seminar. It's a phenomenal meeting, and and I, uh, I mean, this is my second year going to that meeting now, and it's and it's great because you, like we talked about last month, there's there's a great military component where we learn a ton from our military colleagues, and um, then obviously the civilian side of it where you you get to run into a lot of your peers and you get to bounce ideas off each other and you get to hear some of the newest research that's being done and the newest uh, um, clinical treatments that people are doing and um, that's that's a you know my favorite way to kind of keep up where you get to bounce ideas and talk to everyone and and like this like like all of our callers today and like when you ask questions or Adam has ideas and we bounce each other bounce ideas off each other that sometimes is what stimulates um, some of the greatest ideas and thoughts because you're you know asking how can you do this better or you know what's this what's that so when you when you're kind of around other people in that setting uh, it's great so yeah so I'll be going down to DC on Thursday for our our meeting uh, this week which I'm really looking forward to for that reason mm. So many different areas where potentially um, your focus can be taken. I mean, some of the things that folks listening to us have brought up today, again, it kind of makes my head spin thinking about these possibilities. I should mention, too, the fact that, yeah, you want to join us, you can, 877-337-6666. I've had a lot of interesting questions. Adam, before in our discussion, you talked a little bit about um, Tiger Woods and talked about the uh, fusion uh, surgery, uh, too. Um one of the things that I wanted to touch upon was this idea of, I guess it's referred to as anterior versus posterior. So there there are many approaches to fusing the spine. Mm-hmm. Like any joint in the body, there, there are many ways to get there in terms of the anatomy. So traditionally, most back surgery has always gone through the back, uh, where you make an incision uh, – you pull the muscle to the side, you expose the bone and the disc, and you uh, address the anatomy accordingly. Uh, there are different approaches, though. You can go from the side of the body, which is called a lateral inner body fusion. You can go through the belly. Uh, some of the benefits of doing those other approaches, like what Tiger had where you go through the belly, is that you avoid cutting any muscle. When you when you look at the, the lumbar musculature, the back muscles, they're, they're really prominent and very, very strong. But when you pull those muscles off the, the joint to, to fuse a joint, you get into some difficulty in that you actually take the blood supply and the innervation of those muscles away. Uh, so you disrupt those. And, and so people don't always heal with the same level of extensor muscle strength that they might otherwise have. So, so some of the benefits of going, you know, and it's very much an individual decision with my patients about what approaches are best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd say it's always an evolution with what techniques allow you to do the job you need to do with the less kind of with the least invasive approach necessary. Um, so, a lot of patients come to me and say, "What are you doing going through my belly to get to my spine?" It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> the new direct flight. But I did a few times this weekend, to be honest, those patients are doing wonderful. Uh, su- surprisingly so, you know, some patients who've had chronic pain and, and that's a great feeling for your patients and for you. If, they, if they're able to, you know, there is always some post-operative pain, but if they're able to wake up and say, 
I feel different. I feel better. That's an amazing feeling. Um, and so we're constantly evolving our techniques. But, you know, what Tiger Woods had was the traditional anterior fusion. Uh, as I mentioned, there's actually studies on golfers that after spine surgery, in the amateur population, 77% get back to playing golf. So people can get back their life. And, and interestingly, and I didn't realize this, so I did just a little bit of research online you know, prior to the show. Davis Love the third actually had a cervical fusion before coming back, and he was very active mm-hmm. in Tiger's ear saying, you know, if you're still having pain, just suck it up and get the fusion. Yeah. You know, get address the problem and, and get back your career. Um, and, and, and so I think actually it's, you know, it's a great advertisement for what we do as surgeons, but I think it actually, hopefully, what we see in the public, in our athletes, it, it, it's something you can that every patient can relate to with their own injury. And I think that's one of the reasons that we latch on to professional sports from so many different perspectives, is that from a health perspective, it's great because that's a public figure that's gone through the struggle that my patients are going through. Mm-hmm. And I can actually use that, their analogy, their story, to help guide my patients mm. through their own recovery. And when you talk about golf, Arun, you said this when we were talking off the air. With golf, there's really three areas where yeah. primarily injuries are seen. Yep. And Tiger's a perfect reason as to why, another example is why Adam and I teamed up from the neurosurgery and orthopedic standpoint. Mm-hmm. He's had spine surgery and orthopedic uh, surgery, and they are, they're all connected. And they got going to the, the point of the golf injuries, the top three to four injuries that we see in almost every golfer end up being uh, back, knee, shoulder, and wrist, combination of those four. Um, You think about how much twisting goes on in golf, that ends up leading to a lot of these issues. Obviously, the back, you got to twist through your back to, you know, generate the, the swing. The shoulder, you're torquing the shoulder depending on, you know, the follow through and depending on how your swing is, you know, the shoulder takes a tremendous amount of um, range and torque during the swing. And then your knees, you have to twist through your knees to to get, uh, you know, get part of that uh, force. And then your wrists, because obviously, ultimately, the grip on the on the club. So those four in particular take a pretty significant beating uh, in golf. So we do see a lot of that, and and we're going to see a lot of that in the next month because obviously it's getting nice out finally, so everyone can start playing more outdoors now. Um, so there's uh, for a non-contact sport, we see plenty of golf-related uh, injuries, and it's one of the most common questions about you know based on their injuries how when they can plan on oh, going back. Yes, uh, you know so that's <laughs> a, it's a, yeah. So it's one of our favorite non-contact sports from the orthopedic and uh, neurosurgical standpoint. The spine. I don't think we've touched upon this before. Maybe I'm wrong. May, we may have the very first discussion. I'm not, just not sure. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. What is that area like? Can, how can you describe what it's actually physically like in terms of when you look at it? Right. So you can look at it from so many different perspectives. You know, as a neurosurgeon, you know, because there, there's so many specialties involved in treating spine injuries, mm-hmm. whether it's neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, um, rehabilitation medicine, physiatry, anesthesia, pain medicine. But the way I look at the spine is it's a bony structure uh, secured by ligaments and a disc that protects the nerves. Um, 
through a range of motion. So your brain conducts motor impulses, bring, you know, sensory impulses are co- coming from the rest of the body up through the nerves that go in through the spine to the spinal cord. And the spine helps you stay upright, keeps your posture, allows you to give you motion while protecting those neural elements. And it's asking a lot. And when there's breakdown of that spinal anatomy, of that structure, uh, you develop dysfunction of those neural elements. And it can be anything from just some pain in the leg, sciatica, from compression of the nerves in the lumbar spine to uh, what we call myelopathy or uh, spinal cord malfunction that affects the ability to walk, uh, to use your hands, to actually paralysis. So we, we treat that entire spectrum. So what we do as surgeons, we say, okay, what's affected? Where is the disease? Where is, I always tell people, identify the pain generator. Mm-hmm. And then target your therapies. And sometimes those are just you know core strengthening. They can be injections or they can be direct surgery to alter the anatomy of that spine to better support its function. And that can be anything from a decompression to a fusion, uh, to stabilizing, to deformity correction, restoring uh, spine anatomy. So it, it looks at function across a, a fairly complex range of functions. Um, it's it's something that you're, you're you know, it, what's interesting is 20 years into this, you're always learning more about what you do and you always see different manifestations. And that's the fun part of it is everyone has a very individual relationship with their body and with their anatomy. And, and you're kind of there with them trying to help identify what the problem is and help give them solutions. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's that, that person's journey. You're, you're, right. you're, you're trying to help them along. That area that you just mentioned, deformity correction, for someone who in their lifetime has had that as a major issue they're dealing with, mm-hmm. when they have a surgical approach to this, psychologically, What's that like? Because that's the thing, first thing I thought of when you said that is obviously there's the physical side of what's taking place, but the psychological side has got to be huge. It is. I mean, I think, you know, A, I have 20 to 30 patients a day that show up in my office, and the first thing they say is doctor. I mean, it's, it's, it's so anxiety-provoking just to step foot in a neurosurgeon or orthopedic surgeon's office, right? Because right. the fact is – Already, you're you're thinking, oh my goodness, do I need surgery? Really? I think we own the disease. We we own. We have the best understanding of these disease processes, and you know, a lot of times I'm I'm there to look at MRIs, look at a person, figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. give them the strategies. Yes, by deformity and defining that, that typically is what we call scoliosis or curvature of the spine. Uh, it can be. In a more modern definition, um, what we call kyphosis or a forward bending of the spine, which is a natural process of aging as well. Mm-hmm. But there is a point where it gets so unbalanced that you need to address that and fix that. And, you know, a lot of what you need to do is, is you know, be able to psychologically coach someone through their injury and, and through the solution. Yes, you're, you're changing someone's anatomy. That's what you do as a surgeon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to look at, well, what's the risk of what I do and what's the long-term benefits? And, and I always have a discussion and say, listen, 
my goal is to take the risk as close to zero as I can. Nothing in the world is zero risk. Definitely nothing in surgery. But if if this is a pretty low risk procedure, and I think you have a very good chance at having an excellent outcome, then this is worth doing. Uh, you know, and I do my best to try to give numbers to that. But the reality is, is you know, definitely. I mean, there's patients I have who are in their 80s, horrible scoliosis, and I say that risk is too high. It's not. Mm-hmm. I know you're hurting, and I know we have to find strategies, but this is not the right tool for that. Whereas in my younger patients, yes, let's get this addressed. Um, it's pretty low risk, and we need to do this before this becomes a bigger problem in your life. You're there to help them out. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't fight everyone's struggle, but you're there to give your best advice and, and your most mature coaching along the way. And in a case like that, the recovery... Uh, the pr- procedure, how does things pr- progress for that person after surgery? Do they need physical therapy? They need physical therapy. You've changed their anatomy. You've yeah, changed exactly. their alignment. Right. Usually, You've with changed their putting, life, basically. Putting screws in a rod and giving them a new alignment. Often, you know, I'll say to my patients, hey, you're three inches taller today. How's it feel? <laughs> <laughs> but then they have to go through that process, and that's six year, it's six months to a year of getting reacquainted with their body. And, and part of what Aru and I talk about is the fact that I have many patients that get fusion and say, doc, my back is better. Wow, I, my knee or my hip is really hurting because you've fundamentally changed the anatomic alignment of their spine back to the way it should be. But their muscles have to adjust, and and that's where I think having a team approach really matters. Mm-hmm. But but yes, it's it's for every patient, it's a journey, and you know that's partially why we do get so much into the training. You know, I'm, I'm neither of us. You know, we're we're both surgeons. Neither of us are personal trainers mm-hmm. or exercise physiologists. Right. But you have to learn yeah, this. Absolutely. And and that's where it is so relevant in things like sports. Our guests from Igea Brain and Spine. Seems like we just doesn't seem like we were just starting this program. Yeah. This oh, is flowing along. Two here. hours roll through quickly. <laughs> Blink of an eye. Uh, contact information for Igea Brain and Spine before we go. Okay, so the eight six six number for New York and New Jersey, eight six six four six seven one seven seven zero. That's www.igeaneuro, I-G-E-A-N-E-U-R-O.com. Gentlemen, thank you both very much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for Bob, having us. It's been great. Certainly happy holidays to everybody who is listening to us. Safe time, an enjoyable one as well. After Jacob's 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. And after his 9 o'clock update, well, let's just say... It won't be the Easter Bunny who will be here. And that may be an understatement. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.